just before the service, I asked Angel if she had fun with this week's text. Uh, And I'll explain why I bothered asking that. Uh, This involves one of the strangest and most poignant stories of the Old Testament out of the life of Abraham. Uh, John Course, talking about it, gave this take. Abraham believed God, but when he was 86 years old, with the promise yet to be fulfilled, his wife said, Honey, I realize God spoke to you, but let's be practical. You're 86, I'm 76. This promise isn't going to come to pass the way we thought it would. Therefore, take my slave girl, Hagar, have relations with her, and the child you produce will be the promise seed from which God will come the nation God promised you. And then Colson says, when God gives a promise, there's almost invariably a gap between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And it is in that gap of time that we get impatient. Time is running out. I got to make something happen. So Abraham agreed to Sarah's plan, and the result was a conception and a birth of a baby boy named Ishmael. Thirteen years go by. Then God speaks to Abraham again. I'm still going to give you a child. Let Ishmael live, he said. He'll do. No, said God. Ishmael is not the fulfillment of my promise. He is only your fleshly attempt to help me. And then Corson applies it a little painfully for all of us. As I look back over my life, I see that every time I got impatient and tried to help God, The result has always been trouble, Ishmael. Because God is so good, the promise still becomes because he's faithful to his word. But the problem is, I have a bunch of Ishmaels to deal with. You see, to this day, blood is shed daily in the ongoing struggle between the children of Ishmael and the children of Israel. So too, in my own life, whenever Ishmael is born as a result of my own fleshly desires, efforts, Strife, anxiety, and tension are also birthed in my life. Push God, rush God, help God out, and you'll have an Ishmael on your hands. This is a story that's been told for centuries. People of Jewish and Christian faith know it very well. It's a very good picture of what can happen when we help God, and I'll mention that very briefly, but that's not really what I want to focus on this morning. Can you imagine if, having grown up all of your life, you've heard that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree, and when his daddy said, who did it? George said, I cannot tell a lie, I did. Folks, there's no evidence that that ever happened. Uh, But I did it. And then all of a sudden I come up and I say to you, do you know what? George Washington lied and said his cousin John did. And I just completely throw off the story you've known from the time you were a little kid. This is exactly what Paul is going to do with this text. He flips it on his head, completely challenges the way the story had been thought and understood and told for centuries. So we're going to take a look at a tale of two mothers as told by the Apostle Paul. So stand, please, as we look at Galatians 4, 21 through 31. 
And Paul, writing to these people he loves desperately, tell me, you who, are, who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. And she also is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, You who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At the time the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, it is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this passage reveals something very important to us from the very first been pointed out by Timothy George. When Paul used the expression, you who want to be under the law, that's a word of hope. Now, after all he said about law and grace, this is actually hopeful. Because what it suggests is Paul understood they've not gone too far. There's still hope for them to come back to what they ought to be and what they want to be or should be in Christ. They have not completed, they actually completed apostasy at the time of his writing. Now, George points out, yes, some of them are observing calendrical feasts. They're going through the holy days. Some of them are even considering being circumcised. But at this point in time, even though false ideas have gotten into their brain and is affecting them, on the whole, the converts of Galatia have not been completely lost to the truth of God's grace. So, With the knowledge, these people are not too far gone. Paul approaches this argument that he's been building since chapter 3, verse 1, one more time. And he uses the illustration of Hagar and Sarah. And it is his final argument, final in-depth argument about how faith supersedes the law. When we look at this, We are now faced with the reality. In light of what the Word of God says, we will either be children of the law or children of the grace, one or the other. But what does this mean for us? We're going to look at this closing argument with great care. And I'm going to let you know up front, uh, 
When you have gotten very used maybe to the way I preach, and I don't know, I've never formally explained it. I'll give you a real quick shot now. Every time I stand up and preach, unless it's a dramatic monologue and it's not going to be that far off, I will tell you a, a basic principle or truth. I will show you the scripture upon which it is braced. I will then give an argument of why we need to follow that truth and understand how it applies to us. And then I give you application. What do we do in light of that? That's the way my sermons flow. Not today. Just scratch that. That's not what's going to happen. And there's a reason for that. So we're going to jump into the truths that Paul gives us in this text that grow out of this text. Because, folks, we need to be clear on this. And I know you've heard this argument, grace versus law, since chapter 3-1. But it's important we hear it now. And the very first truth I see out of this text, the very first thing that hits me, and it may not have hit you, you may not have read it carefully, but Paul changed tactics in closing his teaching on law and grace. Just like I am changing my, the, the, the basic formula I use for preaching, Paul changed. He's not doing what he has normally done whenever he approaches the Scripture. And folks, anytime someone like Paul makes a major change, that's a signal. We probably ought to listen. And scholars have long debated the significance of this text. Some of them have basically said Paul is just, He's just had an afterthought. He's closed his argument, and then he's thought, one more thing, and he's going to give you one more story, hopefully that will grab at the heartstrings of the Galatians and change your mind. But this is, for them, an afterthought. Paul just shooting from the hip, if you will. Others have argued Paul is using the strongest argument of all from chapter 3, 1 through 4, 31. And he's done it in such a way that it will get the the Galatians' attention and hold it, and maybe they can discover the truth for themselves. Others simply say, well, what it is, is connect the passage immediately. It's just an outgrowth of that. Paul pleaded, be like me, and the end result, if you are like me, you will drive the Judaizers away from you. Well, I don't believe this is an afterthought. I believe it is the inspired word of God, and I believe it has a significance for us. And that significance is, yes, it is a connecting link from this entire argument. He is, he is closing out the argument of chapter 3, verse 1, through these verses, closing it out. His focus is still on justification by grace through faith. But as, as he closes out, he's also setting stage for what's going to follow. I've told you before, Paul's letters invariably follow a pattern. Doctrine, and then what do we do about it? That's why I always give application. What do you do about what you've just heard? And so there's a connection, because Paul ends this discussion on freedom, and do you know what the very first thing he says in chapter 5, verse 1? You're free! So live in the freedom God has given you. It's all an idea to connect the flow into This is the truth I've been sharing with you. Now, what are you going to do about it? What do you need to do about it? And that's the thrust of this. So if you just say, it's not important, it's confusing, why is he going to use a weird story that he has flipped on its head? No, this is God working in Paul. Now, 
my question is, why would Paul use a form of argument he rarely used? And unless you read this closely, you could breeze through this and not understand how radically different it is. Paul normally, when he quotes a passage of Scripture out of the Old Testament, gives the the facts behind it, and then he says, and this is how it applies to us, but not here. He's introduced a story any good Jewish person would would know and appreciate, but he doesn't tell the story in its entirety. He gives a condensation, a condensed version. He does not dismiss the historicity. He is not saying this didn't happen. But he says, I am going to use an allegory. The the newest translation, the NIV, doesn't use the phrase, this may be taken as an allegory. Figuratively, it says, this is figuratively. And some translations actually use the word allegory. He does use the word, the Greek word he uses is the word that gives us allegory. Now, if you want in the world is an allegory, Usually, it's a made-up story that illustrates the truth. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you've read one of the most amazing allegories in the English language. Christian represents every one of us who've been saved by grace, and his pathway through life, all of the different kind of temptations, till he finally reaches the place uh, of where God wants him to be. Paul isn't saying this is a phony story. And the word allegory, it's, he's not using it the way Plato would or Philo or John Bunyan. Some people have pointed out, uh, you might be more comfortable with the idea of a, a type. He's saying this is a type of what happens in us. But Paul isn't rambling and he focuses on this woman. Why? Why this story and why mess with it? The most common argument is those Judaizers, they've been telling these Galatian Christians, you need to follow the law, and they've been talking about the Levitical, the Mosaic laws, all the do's and don'ts and all those regulations. And just to be safe, they're going to go, and you know what? Abraham illustrates this well. Because Sarah gives birth to Isaac, who is the father of the Jewish nation. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, who uh, eventually is the father of all Gentiles. We are legitimate children of God, and you are not. So you need to become like us. And that's the thrust of this. You need to be like us. So... Paul picks up the story they most likely have used, and he's saying they don't get it at all. For all their talk of knowledge, they don't understand the impact of what's saying. So he said, I want you to look at this. I'm going to talk about it figuratively. I'm going to use it as an illustration of everything I've been telling you. So now, let's take a look at the story. We need to look at it closely. Now, to begin with, Paul says... He uses the word law two different ways in one sentence. Those of you who want to be under the law, he's talking about Moses and the Levitical code. But then he says, don't you know what the law says? And he's not talking about Moses and the Levitical code anymore. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures and primarily 
the first five books of Moses. Sometimes called the Pentateuch, but called by Jewish folks as the Torah, which is law. And even to the Jewish people of his day would understand when he's talking about the law, he's including these five books. Uh, today they will understand uh, if you ask, if you have a Jewish friend and you ask them what is the Torah, they'll tell you the five books of Moses. Just like in the Jewish Bible, all of the books that we call historical, they combine with all of the prophetic. And they call everything after the Torah from the history and prophets as the prophets. So, he's saying, do you not hear the law? Do you not understand what the law says? Well, let me tell you what it is. And he goes to this story. It is written. Now, notice at first he doesn't mention the two women by name. Someone says, Hagar. Well, we know her as Hagar. She's a slave woman. Then there's a free woman. And this is a contrast between the slavery to the law and the freedom of grace. And so, looking at the status of these two women, one slave, one free, Paul builds his story. And he says, the slave woman's son is born the ordinary way. Now, some translations say after the flesh, which is a very literal translation of the words, but the ordinary way may help us understand completely what he's talking about. He's not, he doesn't call Ishmael illegitimate. The Old Testament doesn't. He is an heir of Abraham. But what he does say, there's nothing special about his birth. It was just an ordinary birth, like any kind of birth, but the free woman. Folks, if you just take into consideration ages, Abraham is now a hundred. And it's impressive to sire a child when you're 100, but Sarah is 90. And even in a time frame where people lived a long time, ladies 90 years old don't give birth. Especially, she has been barren her entire life. And so what Paul is saying, all of a sudden the promise of God becomes true, and this child is born because of the promise and the miracle working of God. One just a plain old birth, the other a miracle. Now, it's been surmised, you know, if Paul in his rabbinical school days as a little boy had been given a subject to write on, Abraham had two sons, one by a free, one by a a slave woman, his paper would have been right down the line. Ishmael was born to Abraham through the slave Sarah. He represents the Gentile world. Isaac was born to Sarah, and by promise, he represents those of us who know God, the Israelites. Hera, Ishmael, Gentile. Sarah, Isaac, where we came from. And that's the way the Jewish people would have used it. Any blessing you have as a Gentile, they would tell the, the Galatians, All of that is just the mercy of God. You don't have a covenant with him. You don't have an agreement with him. You are outcast. You do not belong. You're illegitimate. But if you do what we say, you can become like us. And now you will be children of God. That's the way they would understand it. 
That's the way Paul would have grown up understanding. But all of a sudden, in a kind of forceful way, he inverts it all. Up until this point, everybody, well, we know that story. Then all of a sudden, it's no longer what you thought. And his argument goes against the historical fact that Isaac was the ancestor to the Jews and Ishmael the ancestors to the Gentiles. But Paul argues Hagar represented the Jewish people, enslaved by a misguided attempt to keep the law. As she was a slave, she represents those people in the lineage of Abraham who thought they could earn their way by keeping law. Sarah's child represents Gentiles who are now receiving the promise of God. Children of Abraham through justification by faith, a miracle of God's grace. Not only that, he says they represent two covenants. Hagar, now this, the Judaizers would have been blowing an aneurysm about now. This would have been too much for them to handle. He said, Hagar, the slave, the one who was a bad idea of how to help out God. Hagar represented the covenant of Mount Sinai. Moses' covenant, the covenant of law. And she represented, Paul said, present-day Jerusalem right now. Why? Because the people of Jerusalem are still caught up in the slavery of trying to earn their way with God by keeping the law they cannot completely keep. And children born out of that covenant are slaves. Remember Paul made that argument? That the law God gave enslaved and drove home a point. You could never keep this law. You need something more. The law may point out to us a way that God wants us to live, but people cannot keep the law 100% trying to earn God's favor. Hagar was a slave, so the son she bears is a slave. The free woman represented the covenant made with Abraham. Completely a covenant of promise. A covenant of miracle. A covenant of grace. A woman who could not have a child at this stage in life has a child. It's a miracle. It's a wonder. It's grace living out. And she represents the heavenly Jerusalem. John talks about there will be a day when the new Jerusalem comes down and God will dwell with his people and they will dwell with him. This is the image. She is our mother. He's writing the Galatians. Our mother, you and I, she's our mother. Now, he quotes Isaiah 54.1. Throws another passage into the scripture and completely understands it. In the, the, the context of 54.1, Isaiah said there is a woman who has a husband. Now there is a woman who is barren, desolate, without a, a husband, without a child. But she doesn't need to mourn, for there will be a day when she will have more than the woman who has a husband. Now, in Isaiah's prophecy, that's one woman. The woman who has a husband is Israel, 
before the captivity, before exile, before judgment comes. The woman who is in desolation is Israel in judgment, in Babylon, in despair, desolate, hurt, ruined. There's no hope. And God is telling them, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you to fruition. And Paul says, that corroborates what I'm going to tell you because the woman who had a husband, Israel, following the law, will not accomplish what the woman who was desolate had when God works the miracle. And grace is now available, not just to the Jewish people, but all people on earth. He says, this is our hope. This is our life. Now, I have a friend who has a very circuitous way of telling a story. What do I mean by that? When you were in school, how many of you learned that the shortest distance between two points, what is it? A straight line. I learned that, and that's one of the few things I remember, and I agree with wholeheartedly. And I just wish the interstate system and city streets could understand that. My friend, when he tells a story, starts here, he's going to end up here. But his story looks more like this. And there comes a point, because I know him really well, and I love him. That's why I said I came into his life to help get some of the rough edges off. I will say, first I'll start reeling him in. And if he doesn't get it, what's your point? What's your point? And so now, Paul has flipped everything upside down. He will horrify the Judaizers. The Galatians may be, but but what is this? What is the meaning behind this tale of two mothers? I'm going to try to answer that question and give you the next truth. Why? What is going on here? What is Paul saying to these people? What's the point, Paul? You've told this elaborate story. The Gentiles wouldn't, be as, wouldn't really be upset about it, although they've heard the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, I'm sure, from the Judaizers. They don't have as much invested in that historical story. The Judaizers would be completely flipped. So what is the meaning behind this? As simply as I can tell you, there are but two roads in trying to find peace with God. Only two paths that people may travel to try and find peace with God. Now, I know full well that an extremely common understanding in our world today is that there are many roads that lead to God. And when I say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, they will call me bigoted. They will call me intolerant. There are many roads. But Paul's saying something here. Only two ways. And one of those ways involves people trying as best they can to earn their way to what they call the ultimate peace and hope. It's an approach of keeping rules and regulations. Some will argue to the point of perfection. Others will say, well, in the end, it just matters that the good you do outweighs the bad you do. But you got to work really hard. Now, in many ways, this approach of finding peace with God 
echoes the vast majority of religious groups in our world. And their their basic idea, and it, it does take a lot of different flavors and expressions, but the basic idea, you find heaven, or you find peace, or perhaps you find paradise, or even nirvana. You're going to do that by working really hard. You're going to do that by keeping these rules and regulations. And in the end, if you did it well, you get to go to heaven. Or if you've done it well, you've broken your karma, your bad karma's gone, and you've broken the endless cycle of uh, being reborn in this world, and you get to go and be absorbed in the great nothing. Paul has argued there's a problem. Whether you're trying to keep the, the Mosaic law earn your way by all the rituals, sacrifices, and behavior, or you have just got your own set of rules and regulations by which you will live your life and try to achieve your form of heaven. Paul's understanding goes back to the text that Angel quoted from James. If you break one point of the law, you're guilty. Nobody can be good enough. Nobody can perfectly in their own power keep God's commands. Whether you understand that to be a Levitical system or a system of rites and rituals of a different faith that will earn your way. That's one way. And it has different manifestations, but it's still the basic one way. I'm going to earn my way to God. The other road in our story was the road of grace that recognizes right from the first, human beings can't keep the law. We just can't do it. We won't do it. We'll fall. We'll we'll falter. But it also tells us they don't have to. Because God has provided a way of salvation through the atoning work of His Son. So Paul is telling them, you don't have to go to the law. You are already full-fledged children of faith. You are the children of promise, just like Isaac was. You are, by faith, like Isaac, not Ishmael. Because your connection with Abraham is not a physical tracing of a family nine of DNA. Your relationship with Abraham is like him. You have trusted God. You have received the gift God has given you. There is a spiritual connection, and he is your father. And everything you've tried to do will come to naught if you're trying to earn your way. And then again, in a very graphic way, Paul will illustrate one more time, those two roads are mutually exclusive. He he points... And says, the scripture says, drive out the slave woman and her son. Now, in the context of the Abraham story, Sarah's jealousy gets to her, and she tells Abraham, you got to get rid of him. And God goes ahead and tells him, you do need to get rid of him. Paul is saying, remember who he says Hagar's son is. The law. 
and keeping of the law. You need to get rid of the law. You need to get rid of the Judaizers. You need to get them out of your heart, out of your mind, out of your life. And Luther, when he talks about this, says, this isn't surprising. Anytime the word of God is given, Luther will argue Satan will try to destroy it through a various number of means. And he says he will... He will he would stir up endless sects, offenses, persecutions, and slaughter, for he is the father of lies and a murderer. Paul said, The son, the law of son, is persecuting you. And in the story of Isaac and Ishmael, the book of Genesis doesn't specifically say he persecuted him. What it says is at a party, he laughs at him or he mocks him. Now, generations of rabbis have turned that into a lot of big, different, hairy stories. But he's essentially saying, you know, I'm the oldest. So I get it all, basically, and he's mocking him. And Luther said, that's what the enemy will do. And listen, okay, I need you to hold on for this last statement by Martin Luther, not Danny Nance, although I am repeating it. If someone does not want to endure persecution from Ishmael, let him not claim that he is a Christian. I want you to hear that. The moment we decide to walk by grace through faith, a world system will be built against us. They will have very little love for us, very little understanding. You may have friends and family who are rule keepers and think you're crazy for thinking you can just Grace, one, they'll argue, it's not fair to Jesus that he dies for you. Well, it's fair because the Father said, this is what I'm going to do. But a life of works looks at a life of grace, doesn't understand it, can't understand it, and will ridicule and attack it. So if we think that we are exempt, well, we don't understand what's going on. The way of justification by grace through faith cannot be compromised. Just as the law had to be driven off, we cannot say, okay, now I've got to keep the law. Now that he saved me, now I've got to work really hard to make sure God is happy with me. But there is a difference between those who are of grace and those who are not. I will touch on it in a moment. We cannot earn our way to God. But let me just give you a... We can't forget the people who are caught up in law. And so in the end, the way to freedom in Christ is clearly marked by the road to grace. This is the point of Paul's story. This is where he's been going. I'm going to turn everything they've ever known on its head, and I'm going to tell you what God is saying through the Spirit to you right now. And he's already made this statement in chapter 3, verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We are children of God. So that's what it means. A choice. Will you try to earn your way to God's favor, or will you accept the truth that He loves you and He wants to shower that favor on you through Jesus Christ if you'll but trust Him?
So, after all of this, we finally get down to application. How do we apply this tale into our lives? How do I look at this parable, this figurative language, this allegory? How do I say, what, what does this have to do with me? And what do I need to do in light of this? How do I respond? How do I live? First of all, the promise of our freedom in Christ should be fully embraced. Paul's going to pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. Live in the freedom Christ has given you. Be free. Live free. If I were to ask how many in this room ever doubt your salvation, I'm not going to ask this because I don't want anybody to have to walk out because they told the mistruth. The vast majority of us at some point in our walk with God have doubted. And I will admit that. And the most frequent reason for my doubt is when I look and I listen to that voice says, a real Christian wouldn't do that. Well, folks, in my own power, I can't follow God. And that doesn't mean I'm a failure. It means I'm human. And I need the hand of God to be with me. It's painful for my pride to admit that I stumble and fall. I would love to be able to stand before you someday and say, I have now arrived. No, no. If I ever do say that, and it's not in just, I have arrived, you have free my, you have my permission Instead of saying amen, say boo. You're lying. It's not true. The fact is, I'm crippled. But Christ can bring healing to my crippled nature. He's already delivered us from the penalty of sin. If He is our Lord and Savior, we need not fear death and its aftermath. We are his children. He is now working in us through the process of sanctification by his spirit. He's now working in us to move us further and further away from the power of sin. Our lives are supposed to be getting more and more like Jesus. And we should be having more and more victory. And there is coming a day he will deliver us fully and finally from the very presence of sin. All the former things will be passed away. So we need to embrace this. We need to love this. We need to rejoice in this. We need to tell God, thank you. You have made me free in Christ. And I have hope because of you. Second application. The promise of our freedom in Christ should be celebrated the deep depths of our being. Helmut Thielke, a German theologian. He had a wonderful way of words. Uh, in an article in Leadership Journal, wrote, the glum, sour faces of many Christians, they rather give the impression that instead of coming from the Father's joyful banquet, they have just come from the sheriff who has auctioned off their sins and now are sorry they can't get back at them again. A lot of Christians, I've told you before, there are a lot of Christians walking through this world. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Folks, 
This shouldn't be. Our lives should be lives of joy. When we realize what Christ has given us, even in the midst of horrible pains, horrible horrible disappointments, we can have joy. Ken Hutcherson wrote about that in his book, Hope is Contagious. And he's talking about the reality you can face anything in life and have true peace and joy. And when that happens, it becomes contagious. It lifts other people up around you. And he asks, isn't that the kind of person you want to be? Instead of joining over and over again in the whining about how bad things are, just your presence shows others that, hey, life is still a wonderful gift and we should all be enjoying it. Now, that's great and that's wonderful. And they, yeah, that's so unrealistic. That book was written chronicling a time in Hutcherson's life when he was battling cancer. Listen to what he had to say. One day I was relaxing in my recliner after having spent five hours in the emergency room the night before. I'll admit I was exhausted and the pain medication wasn't working as well as I would have liked. I looked around and saw my family going about their lives as usual. Video games, chores, music, laughter. My wife Pat was fixing breakfast. Even our new little puppy was settling into a comfortable routine and enjoying everyone's efforts to spoil him. Visitors stopped by to chat. Some friends from church surprised me with a birthday cake. I'd almost forgotten it was my birthday. So there I sat, surrounded by so much goodness, even as I'm feeling lousy. My favorite cake is staring at me, but I have no appetite. My 11-year-old runs past me, and I don't have enough energy to grab him and wrestle him to the ground like I used to. I'm trying to have a conversation with my guests, but between the short night and the powerful pain pills, I can barely stay alert. And you know what I'm thinking? Can you imagine how close I am to being overwhelmed with what is happening to me? And I can imagine all sorts of things he's feeling. I cannot imagine this apart from the grace of God. As he's looking at all this, he said, the words practically shouted from inside me. Isn't God great? What a privilege to be his child. There's such a joy in Christ. If we will come to the place of acknowledging, this is what he's done for me. I am the child of my God. My elder brother has paid the way. The spirit of God is within me. And my life should have joy. Not happiness. Happiness is totally contingent on circumstance. Joy comes from the Inward knowledge, I belong to God. When that happens, if Christians started walking around without nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and instead their lives, their life, verse a song is now that I, I am saved. Amazing grace, how great the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. Joy. Then finally, the promise of our freedom in Christ should be eagerly shared. I have been not at the exact place where Paul has been, but there have been times in my ministry that I have been extremely frustrated. And I could really understand if Paul just said, I'm washing my hands of you. I came and shared the gospel. You received it this quickly. You're falling away. I've had enough. Just Go your merrily way back to the law. 
I know that feeling. I've told you before that I have, I have complained to God that you warned Isaiah no one was going to listen to him. You could have given me a heads up. And then the Spirit says, well, why do you think the story of Isaiah is in there? Paul didn't wash his hands. Instead, he called them back to the faith that God had brought them to in Christ. Now, here at Bay Vista, we need to share the good news with each other. We need to be talking it. We need to be singing it. Man, there were some absolutely amazing songs done today. One you may not ever have heard before. Absolutely crazy, beautiful songs that, that should just having our hearts leap up into heaven. On more than one occasion, as crowds have sung Count Your Many Blessings, and I look at their faces, I imagine them saying, Count Your Many Bunions, name them one by one. Folks, there's joy here, and we need to be taught. When you see a brother or sister downhearted, Remind them of who they are in Christ. Share with them this truth. We are free in Christ. He has set us free. He has saved us. We are God's children, and we need to be telling each other. That's why corporate worship is so important. Being with other brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing the word of God through our songs, hearing the word of God together, praying We need to be telling folks. But as much as the world of legalism hates the way we live, and calls us foolish, we need to more purposely love them. I will repeat what I've said before. We cannot expect lost people to act like they're saved. They don't know the freedom they can have in Christ. They don't know the hope that comes that I don't have to earn my way. God's paved the way. So we have this, this truth that we've embraced. That salvation is by grace through faith. We have a joy that Jesus brings into us whenever we remember what is ours in Christ, even in the midst of pain. Paul, when he's talking about his thorn in the flesh, says, I asked three times for God to take it away from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient. And then I remembered in my weakness, he's made strong. And all of the different battles you face in life, we need to be reminding each other about the goodness of grace. These people have no idea what we're talking about. There's joy in us. And we need to be looking at all of those people out there and finding ways to speak the truth into their lives. And what should be driving us is not the fact that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. What should be driving us is the love that comes to the Savior who saved us. And we want to tell him. I remember when Rachel broke up with me for six months when we were kids and I was heartbroken and I was convinced she was, I was going to marry her. I was 15, she was 16. Most of you know the story. Our second date, I asked her how many children she wants. That we never really had a third date after that. And I scared her and I was so I was devastated. A friend pulled me aside, the only person on earth who could have told me this, and I would listen. He pulled me aside and said, You're making an idiot of yourself. You need to get focused back on God again. I did. And then one night during a prayer session with our youth group, 
when we said amen, Rachel didn't let go of my hand, and my heart started beating so rapidly, almost out of my chest, and she realized what she was about to throw away and came back, and I was right. I was right after all, because we did get married, and we were married 32 years before she went on to be with the Lord. Um, and by the way, Saturday a week ago would have been 45 years. That was a, kind of a rough day for me. Folks, when I knew she was back with me, how long do you think it took me to tell people? She couldn't resist. I wanted to share and I've always, I love telling Rachel's stories. I love what that woman meant in my life. And I want to share. Folks, I love Jesus and what he's done in my life. And I should want to share. Decades ago, Chris Christian wrote a song. There's a great, great joy. I, I, I heard Dogwood sing it. The first people I've heard it. I just want to share one line, the opening line. And I want it to sink into your hearts. There's a great, great joy in Jesus. And through me, Lord, it longs to be told. Shame on us. If we can keep the story of Jesus all to ourselves. May this be our heart. For all that you've done for me, God... Give me a heart to share, to tell. Let this be my purpose. Let this be my goal. As we continue to ponder a tale of two mothers, let's remember we are children of freedom. And part of that freedom needs to be letting the world know there's hope for you. There's life in Jesus. So let that be our heart. Let us just pray, God, so fill us with joy that I can't help but tell. I can't help but say, this is why I have